0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in Medieval History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Hope Williard, who is an academic subject librarian, as well as as an associate lecturer in the School of Humanities and Heritage at University of Lincoln in the UK. Today, we're going to discuss her new book, Friendship in the Merovingian Kingdoms, Venantius Fortunatus and His Contemporaries, out 2022 with the Arc Humanities Press in Leeds. Hi, Hope. How are you?
1: I'm good. Yes, it's lovely to be on the podcast. Thank you for hosting and having me here.
0: That's really nice. Thank you for joining me. So how are things in Lincoln today?
1: Things are good. Things are good. It is a bit gray, but the sun is struggling through, so... Hopefully, spring will be on the way. The snowdrops are up, which is really a relief to see.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Well, good luck with that. I just—it's got to—it's got to happen. But I, then I'm like, oh, it's almost spring. And then I remember it's February, and I'm
1: being delusional. Yeah. But you know,
0: it, it, delusions keep us alive in these like winter months in Northern Europe. Yeah,
1: absolutely. You have to believe that spring is coming, even when it feels like it's not
0: a little train that could. That's us. Um, all right. So today, we I'm so excited to talk about your book. Uh, the first thing I want to get at is how this fits in your academic life. Now, this comes out of your dissertation, yeah?
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Yeah. All right. In fact, it's like very clearly. So how did you pick this topic? How did you come to it?
1: Um, it has a fairly long backstory. I did my undergraduate degree in medieval studies and Part of the involved taking a course on early medieval Europe, which is actually how I started thinking that I wanted to do that degree in the first place, was, was walking in and hearing about people like the historian Gregory of Tours, and just thinking that this was a really fascinating period of history with some really complicated and beautiful and fun texts. So I ended up going to England for a junior year abroad, doing more work um, kind of on, especially the earlier part of the Middle Ages, and then came back. My final year of university, the special seminar in Latin happened to be about the 6th century poet, Venantius Fortunatus. And I was fascinated. But I was also really interested in some of the ways that his work seemed to be fairly well known among a small group of people who work on Latin literary culture, but not so much integrated into the broader conversation among early medieval historians at at most. Fortunatus was a kind of footnote to Bring in a bit of lovely kind of color, a little anecdote from the poetry, and then to go back to the kind of historical narrative. So I was really interested in how the story might change if it was told through the poetry and from the perspective of Fortunatus and his many friends. All right. Um, and
0: how did it, Are you happy about like this? This work did it work out? Is it all you'd hoped?
1: I think so. Yes, I, I think it's interesting to try and think about how you organize and and break down that sort of of project because one of the things that's nice about telling narrative history from narrative sources so something that's thinking about. Events before and after, or as they proceed chronologically in time, and the kind of causal connections between them. The nice thing about writing that type of history from a body of sources that is also engaged in that project of kind of organizing and interpreting is you have a very clear kind of frame and, and definition for everything to go through. Whereas if you're working with literary sources like poetry, which don't have those clear markers, some of Fortune work can be dated, but not all of it. Um, And, you know, sort of thinking about ways that you can come up with a, a thematic organization for something that still follows through different things that the source is telling you
0: know um actually i would like to i wanted to get to this anyway it's perfect time now to talk about the work of being a scholar of the early medieval period which is a very different beast than being a late or you know doing the high middle ages or the late middle ages or certainly the early modern era so how do you go about studying
1: a guy like fortunatus I think there's a pretty common misconception that a lot of people have that the early middle ages are the so-called dark ages and everything is really terrible and we don't know much about it, but what we do know is that it's all pretty grim and... (laughs) <laughs> it's, you know, um, the same way that medieval is often used as a kind of adjective for something that's not very nice. And I think one of the interesting things about writing early medieval history and writing history with poetry as a source that I really find exciting is the ways in which you're putting together pieces of a puzzle and it's always a little bit incomplete, or it's always something where the questions you want to ask aren't necessarily the ones that the sources are answering. But you can also get this really interesting perspective on their concerns and their values from what is there. Mm -hmm. So
0: tell me about your sources. What do they look like? How are you finding them?
1: Yes, so um, Fortunatus is the the main figure um, in this particular book, is one of our major sources uh, for the Merovingian kingdoms. The Merovingian kingdoms are essentially in what's now um, France, France, the Rhineland part of Germany, Belgium, a little bit of Switzerland, Um, so kind of that particular area of Europe. And they essentially come about um, in the period of the 5th century when the Western Roman Empire is politically coming apart. The lands that had been ruled by an imperial administration are taken over by the people who had basically been employed as as Roman troops. And that's a very interesting process. By the time of the 6th century, that process is a few generations in the past. So one of the really interesting things about... Merovingian society is the extent to which you can see the ways that they're drawing on the Roman past, using Latin for administration, drawing on Roman cultural values, thinking about the ways that people connect with each other or should be connected to each other in terms of relationships of of patronage and, and friendship and Dependence and reciprocity and all of these sorts of things, um, but also that, you know, that, that kind of um, administrative and political structure is no longer there. So you have this interesting kind of um, dichotomy between what's going on uh, culturally and what's going on administratively and politically.
0: Um, so I'm actually very curious about the canon, Fortunatus' Fortunatus's canon as well. Like specifically, what do you what do you have there? Like tell us what you're reading there.
1: Absolutely. So Fortunatus is what sometimes is called an occasional poet, and that doesn't mean that he's a poet who only writes every so often. What that means is that he is a poet who writes for occasions. So. He is the author of over 200 poems, um, at least six to eight um, biographies of the saints, and a really long kind of epic poem about the life of a saint named... So it's actually a pretty substantial body of of material. Again, going back to what I was saying earlier, there tends to be this narrative that the early Middle Ages doesn't have a lot of material, and Fortunatus' archive is really quite large. So that's the kind of um, rough uh, sort of scope and scale of the material. Not all of the poems are very long. You do have some really big pieces for big occasions, which we'll hopefully talk a bit more about in our conversation, which are, you know, sort of two to 300 long lines long, they're really large. Um, but you also have some very short, you know, four to eight line kind of little pieces, which are essentially the equivalent, almost the equivalent really of sending a friend a text to say kind of, hi, how are you? I was just thinking about you. Um, so you have these really lovely um, little kind of short social social poems as well. And the, the the variety of the corpus is one of the things that makes it really interesting to read and to think about.
0: Yeah. What a lovely idea of sending someone in a quick little poem. Yes. <laughs> so- Thinking about you. Here's a poem. Um, so he's from he's from uh, yeah. Educated in Ravenna. So what's that going to look like? What's his education going to be?
1: Um, so his education is going to be a fairly standard late Roman education. Obviously, a lot of it is literary and rhetorical. There's some indication from a comment he makes in one of his poems that he studied law Um, because by this point in time the Italian peninsula is pretty thoroughly Christianized at least at the level of the elite intellectual class of society. Um, It's also going to be a Christian education as well, so one that focuses on obviously the Latin text of the Bible, but also by the time Fortunatus is writing, there's a fairly substantial body of Latin Christian poetry poetry for him to read and, and think about and discuss with his classmates as well. It doesn't seem that he knew Greek, or if he did, he didn't know very much of it. And of course, Italy, because of the way the peninsula over the course of Fortunatus' childhood and young adulthood is going back and forth between the, the Goths and the Byzantines. You know, it's it's not impossible that there would have been some exposure for, for him or, or young men like him to to Greek, but it doesn't seem to be a language that that comes out in his writing anyway.
0: Mm, okay. Um, so this feels fairly, um, it's kind of, you know, transitional. It feels very of his time. Yeah. Would you say that?
1: Yes. I think that's one of the really interesting things about the way that people have scholars in the past have approached Fortunatus as seeing him as this kind of liminal figure, this in-between figure. He's either the, first medieval poet or the last classical poet. And it's one of the interesting things when you think about this question of periodization, which a lot of historians do, are the Merovingians late antique or are they early medieval? Which is a question that possibly, you know, um, only a sort of small group of people in the world actually think matters. <laughs> sure, but but I, I think when, 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 when we're medievalists, especially when we're medievalists who work on Latin literature, you know, we, we are dealing with with kind of specialized questions that have, in some sometimes some ways, kind of. Perhaps larger insights. And I think that that sort of question of, is this late antique, is this looking back towards, um, you know, the late Roman world, the traditions of classical Latin and Latin Christian culture, or is this kind of looking forwards to the rich and wild and varied and funny and profane and urbane and witty world of Latin that comes into being in the Middle Ages so he's both he's always both
0: he's absolutely absolutely always both Um, which I mean in one of these things that this book is really interested in right is tracing how classical Roman ideas kind of develop into different things in Merovingian and Gaul Um, alright so he himself is educated in Ravenna and then makes his way to Gaul Um, What takes him away from home?
1: I mean, there are a lot of really interesting theories about that. And someone could and perhaps should write a historical novel about that very question, because I think it would be a really good one. So there is a theory that um, Fortunatus, who's educated in Ravenna, um, Ravenna is... The capital city of Byzantine, so Eastern Roman Italy, there's a big war between the the East Romans and the Gothic rulers of the peninsula over who's going to, to control it. There's a theory that because of sort of where and what Ravenna is at this time, that Fortunatus is essentially going across the Italian Alps as a kind of East Roman agent to sort of almost spy on the Merovingian rulers and kind of report back and be a sort of a diplomat and in favor of East Roman interests. This is a good story, but there is very little evidence for it. And we do actually have bits of his poetry where he says why he went, um, which is that He says he was going on pilgrimage uh, to the shrine of St. Martin in Tours to be healed of an infection in his eyes. Now, if you take the bits of his poetry that can be clearly dated to early in his time in Merovingian Gaul, and you can kind of do this by looking at the wider historical context So, what's known about the lives of his addressees, when they were active, when they lived, when they died, these sorts of things. If you take this contextual information and plot where he is early in his career, that is the longest, most meandering route to tour one could possibly take. So it's certainly not to discount that reason and not to say that it wasn't a part of the story, but I think certainly there's possibly another reason at play and that reason is simply opportunism. The Italian peninsula is not really a place because of decades of civil war where someone who has this particular type of literary education that he has can make a reliable living at it. Meanwhile, across the Alps, there is this very powerful, fairly stable, though also somewhat riven by civil war, but that's that gets particularly gets going about um, a decade after he arrives. So, you know, initially signs seem promising. Um, there's this, this place where the sort of literary um, career that he's been trained for and has the skills for seems like a possibility. Sure. Um,
0: and and it's a promising and wonderful option, right? It makes perfect
1: sense. Go ahead. The other thing I would just add there is as well, from what we can tell about the few of his poems that are written while he's still in Northern Italy. The people he is writing for are Italian bishops and they're Italian bishops who seem to have connections across the Alps. And certainly some of his earliest addressees in Gaul are Merovingian bishops who have wider connections so there seems to be this this chain of plausible events where through the regional and international network that is the the Christian church at this time he's able to to make this transition to a new place yeah
0: yeah, because I mean there is there's much more mobility than one would think, than like probably the average person thinks about the early medieval period, but it's still or you know, any time before the present really. But I mean it's still difficult to go some go someplace new and be set up.
1: I think that's that's absolutely true. And I think one of the things that's really interesting using Fortune Otis's poetry for a lens on that question in Particular is thinking about the value of networks and connections because, you know, this is an era without border control. Nobody has a passport. And your bona fides, how someone knows that you're a trustworthy and reliable person and you are who you say you are, is your connections to other people, your connections to a local community, and then the way that members of that local community and their connections can connect you through to other people. So one of the things Fortunatus is doing in his poetry is that process of reaching out of building that network and making those connections.
0: And yeah, all right. Um, and he, he does, he gets indexed, he ends up with a very extensive networks of a network of contacts with whom he maintains a pretty steady flow of you know, of communication. Um, so how does patronage, let's introduce the idea of patronage. How does patronage work in this period?
1: Yes, patronage is a really interesting concept. And I think it's not one we have a very clear Analogy for in our modern society necessarily or modern Western society, I should say. In the ancient world, um, patronage is essentially a reciprocal, personal, and asymmetrical social relationship. So, reciprocal, it goes both ways. The people involved in it are both kind of mutually benefiting. Personal, it's between people. And asymmetrical, it's between two people who are of unequal social status or or wealth. And one of the interesting things um, about that relationship in the late Roman world before there is no Political and administrative Western Roman Empire is that those structures can map on a bit to the bureaucratic and administrative structures of the empire because of the ways that you have sort of hierarchies of of officialdom and you know local administrative hierarchies and so on, and to a certain extent. That structure shrinks and regionalizes when you have the sort of central imperial structure disappearing. But people, you know, people need um, people who don't have social power, economic power, in a sense, need access to people who have more more social capital or or more more ability to to do things to to make friends and influence people or or to do to do things um than you know than they they themselves do um and those people in turn you know they they can't do everything for themselves not not everyone can sort of be be self-sufficient or, or be all things in and of themselves. So there is that sense of, of mutuality where someone like Fortunatus might have the might not have the the wealth, the family connections, the depth of history in a particular place, but still has. A unique skill, the skill of writing sophisticated, beautiful, metrically correct Latin poetry that someone who is, you would think, in a relatively more powerful position would still find very valuable for pursuing their own networks, their own interests, making a splash socially, um, and all of these kinds of things. So one of the things you start to see with patronage in Merovingian society is ways that people are are trying to think through this issue of the asymmetry of the relationship because nobody likes to kind of be put in an inferior position. No one likes to have that pointed out to them and so one of the things that's a larger scale i think kind of social change almost social debate i might say debate in society change that's being played out is how to talk about these kinds of unequal social relationships when people are addressing each other and so one of the ways uh, to do that is to borrow heavily from language of friendship. I think when we think about friendship in modern Western society, we think very much about a relationship that is founded on personal affection, personal esteem, a kind of close Bond between two people or, or a group of people and I certainly think that that is true for the, the time and place we're talking about in in and Gaul. but for them it is also very much a friendship is a relationship of mutual benefit and reciprocity in addition to the emotional and effective side of it so if you can take the trappings essentially the language of that relationship and talk about other relationships particularly ones which are asymmetrical then in a sense the people of the time are creating a more level and equal space where everyone can participate and be involved.
0: Okay and so is it reasonable to say that friendship, um, friendship is a tool to kind of strip away some of the difference then, right? Like friendship is, is, is this? Hmm. It's not, that's not the question
1: I want to ask. Um, okay, yeah, but it's, it's a really good way to put it friendship is absolutely a way to soften stark differences between people. So then the
0: friendship itself also, though, is there is no friendship that isn't a utility as well.
1: Well, it's an interesting question, I think, because, of course, we're when when reading early medieval poetry, um, these are sources that are highly constructed. They're very much kind of put together together. For a particular purpose at a particular time, so not any emotional language that is, is used, I think is always doing both purposes. It might be expressing a genuine emotional feeling or emotional bond, and I really think it's important to to sort of stress that, and also one of the things that, that makes the poetry so engaging to read is... That that feeling of of connection that modern people can sometimes have enjoying enjoying it, um, but but also to acknowledge that that representations of of emotions and of relationships do have a very practical purpose in this period because of the importance of having a network and having a community for social security and identity.
0: Yeah. So yes, and there. Well, I think like maybe it's just useful right now to talk about some examples of this, which you use, um, you know, like how you make your argument in your book. So talk to me about um, the church dedication of the Cathedral of
1: Nantes. Absolutely. So one of the people Fortunatus writes a few poems for is the Bishop of Nantes, uh, whose name is Felix. And Felix is the subject of a really interesting poem, uh, one of actually the longer poems that Fortunatus writes about churches, um, because Fortunatus writes this, this longish poem essentially to celebrate the fact that Felix has built a new cathedral in Nantes. And hooray, um, everyone's everyone's very excited. And typically what happens when someone builds a, a new a church or a new cathedral is it has to be dedicated. There has to be a ceremony to to consecrate the building and make it fit for the purposes of worship. So as far as we can tell, Fortune Otis's poem is written for that occasion, that ceremony. And it, in many ways, follows what's a kind of standard um, structure for a lot of these poems where um, he's talking about um, the building itself and how beautiful it is. And we get this lovely description of some of the, the decoration, painting, light. Light in churches is very, very important. And. Um, and a bit about the the saints whose relics are in the building um, and to, to whom it's dedicated and you know kind of wrapping up with oh yes, and this is here because of this this great guy Felix um, and so so you, you typically get that that kind of three uh, three part structure Um And it's just a really interesting case in point, because not only does it kind of go through that so clearly, but it really makes clear the ways that these sorts of occasions are social ones, because towards the end of the poem, uh, Fortunatus name drops everybody who's important there. And so you get this lovely um, picture of, you know, all of the kind of regional bishops and the fact that they're they're all present. So it's almost like seeing the the social network and the social bonds in in action, kind of captured captured in time.
0: Yeah. So there's this way that the high and mighty that are at this place, this is written down for all eternity, we can see that they were they were of import at this time.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yes. They, they matter, see and be seen and that's recorded.
1: Yes
0: all right which is slightly like a it's a different situation than we have um that we see in other places another thing i really want to talk about is uh the thuringian princess frankish queen retires to religious life and founds and she founded the convent of the holy cross of Poitiers. Yes. so how does she know fortunatus how are these two related
1: um, so as 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 you've as you've wonderfully introduced her to you, Bradigand is a former Maravinian queen. She has this incredibly tragic history, where she is essentially um, taken from her family as as a young child. Her, she's from you, a, a royal I'm sorry, family. hope
0: can you hold on one second? No, of course. Okay, wait, one sec. We'll go back to this. Um, yeah. Uh no problem. It was um May. May did oh. everything. Yeah, they texted you, but you oh. must not have seen it.
1: I had it. Okay, thank you. I'm right. No
0: problem. Bye. Have a nice night. I run a I run a study abroad program. These things happen. Okay, so <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we're gonna go back to um how like so Radigans and how does she know Fortunatus?
1: Right. So Radigan knows Fortunatus because she is a, a former Merovingian queen. She is captured after the slaughter of her family and the destruction of their kingdom and married, not perhaps entirely voluntarily, uh, to one of the Merovingian kings. What her biographers tell us is that perhaps because of this incredibly traumatic and and difficult childhood or... A combination of that and an innate kind of interest, she had always been very strongly attracted to religious life and to really extreme forms of devotion. One of the words I use in the book of Paramount is the term asceticism, which in this period means a really strict and stringent form of Christian practice that is focused on fairly extreme disciplining of the body. So things like, you know, sort of restricting oneself to a small space, restricting the amount of sleep, you know, restricting the foods one eats and that's kind of ceaseless or very frequent um, uh, prayer um, and, and worship. So all of these things. And she... One of the, the kind of more remarkable, I think, um, sort of success stories of, of um, female agency of the early Middle Ages is actually Radigan leaving her husband and pursuing this religious life that she wants to have. And so um, she makes this kind of slow um, progress away towards the life she wants, eventually ending up in the city of Poitiers. Um, and founding a a monastery she doesn't become the head of that monastery but she's still very much one of the most uh, important people in it and she occupies this really interesting place because in addition to being this very spiritually significant figure in the way that living saints in the early Middle Ages could be, she's also someone who maintains a clear interest in Merovingian politics and clear kind of connections with, with that wider world. And in some ways... Fortunatus seems, as far as we can tell, we have, we have no direct evidence for this, but it, it seems to be something that's implicit in the account that we can gather from his, his early poetry in and Gaul. He seems to realize that attaching himself to Radigand and to her connections is going to be the most stable place to be in in the Merovingian kingdoms because the thing about living in a monastery in this period is that is where you spend the rest of your days. You don't move and the royal courts are, are itinerant so they all move, move around so anybody who wants to be the king's court poet is going to be pretty constantly on the road whereas if you go and be a court poet at the, the convent um, of a former queen, then you have both the advantage of lots and lots of connections and also a stable and secure place to live. So we don't know exactly how they met, but we can put together the pieces to say that because of, of Radigan's connections and because of Fortunatus's work for the most important Merovingian bishops and, and kings of the mid-sixth century that, that that's how he he arrives there. It's not clear whether he intended to do that or whether it's one of those things where it's it's how things ended up working out.
0: Just uh, yeah. And who but it certainly it's a nice place for him to end up, right? No not bad. So but then we have this issue of um reading a friendship through the men and women through someone who's in a convent um, language that like feminized language that can't be used. So, I mean, I think there's some question of can men and women even be friends, but uh, how about just this? Are these two, are they friends? What's their relationship?
1: I think it's a really interesting relationship. One of the things that I think has been lacking before my book was was written and when Fortunatus was being used mainly by historians as a footnote. and I should just stress that mine is not by any means the first standalone book on Fortunatus. Um, and there there are a few really wonderful books about him. Um, but one of the things that that frustrated me sometimes when I was was working on on this book, is the standard approach to Fortunatus as a poet was to focus very much on his connections to bishops, his connections to kings, and not really to think about his connections to women as as equal and important to those other two. And I think in the book, I, I call it something like a center of gravity in the collection, that actually, if you look at Fortuna poetry by the numbers, something like close to 25% of it is written to Radigand and to her adopted daughter, Agnes, who's the abbess of her convent. So something like 20 to 25% of it is written to them alone now that's that's an interesting problem in a way because quite a lot of that is transmitted a bit differently from from the main collection which might be an interesting issue we could we could potentially talk about later and from that body extensive body of work a really interesting picture emerges with I'll start that sentence again. Some of the time with Fortune Otis's poetry for Radigand, you can see that he's clearly performing this kind of function of a court poet where he is writing in her service and for her interests to do things that she wants done. And some of the time it seems clear that he is writing these poems to foster um, kind of connection and community with, with her and her uh, community of nuns and especially with, with her and, and Agnes, the abbess. So I do think it's absolutely possible to talk about a genuine friendship and, and connection and, and community between the three of them. But I I also think the professional side of that relationship and the things that Radigand can do by employing Fortunatus as this kind of court poet is really interesting also
0: so uh what is this what is this going to tell us really how are we seeing the way patronage friendship develops then we have this relationship which between the two of them it's really meaningful and and she's using him to ext- for for her power as well right <laughs>
1: Yes. And I, I think one of the things this is kind of telling us about patronage and friendship is about the extent to which these systems are are connected. They're not separate, because in, in the classical period, they had been parallel and overlapping, but identifyingly, identifiably separate. And in the Merovingian kingdoms, or the Merovingian Period, you're really seeing those lines of distinction start to blur and collapse a bit. And so it's a new new ways of representing and, and talking about uh, these kinds of social bonds. I think also what Fortunatus really showcases in his work is the development of a language of spiritual kinship so a way that people could make by virtue of a shared um, shared faith, a shared Christian faith could create these bonds and these communities and these kinds of connections with people with whom in other ways they, they wouldn't have had access to Fortunatus and Radigand are are not related, their their families are not um, connected, there, there's no kind of traditional social bond between them, but because of this way of drawing a, a spiritual bond between them and representing them as a kind of spiritual family it opens up this space for them to be friends with each other Mm -hmm.
0: and there's a space where i mean the spiritual the christianity and the spiritual life really gives um fortunatus uh power or an authority as well right um, I wanna I wanna talk about Chilperic and Fredegund. Um, and listeners, this is a great story. This is the story you want when you're thinking about like what's what's going on in the in the crazy early Middle Ages. It's this. It's these two. So just look that up on your own time. But like, what is does your mean for this? All right. Is that um, Queen Fredegund and King Chilperic lose their two of their sons, Clodebert and Dagobert. I hope I don't know what I've just done to their to the pronunciation of their names. But the two of them die in a dysentery epidemic. And so the, and then Fortunatus writes consolations. Right. So what's what is he what is he trying to get here? What is he doing?
1: It's such an interesting thing. And before I, I answer your question properly, I, I just have to speak directly to, to listeners and to say that Merovingian names are often difficult to pronounce. So don't let the fact that you might not be sure how to say them stop you from exploring these stories because they are totally amazing. Um, So um, Consolation is a particular genre of poetry which is typically written for people who have suffered some sort of major bereavement so the loss of children the loss of spouses the loss of parents and in some ways it's meant to in the way that offering any kind of comfort in the face of grief can sometimes be a bit performative and perhaps more about the, the person who's doing it than the actual people who are grieving. Um, it can be a little bit of, of that, that type of, of genre where it can often read very much as the poet telling the grief-stricken person what they should do or how they should behave or what level of sadness is is appropriate or, or inappropriate. And what this does in some ways is... It demonstrates that that the poet knows the the correct standards of behavior is is kind of playing, you know, the, the sort of um, social social game in, in the appropriate appropriate way. What I think is interesting about the way that Fortunatus um, approaches this, because the the poems are, are really very interesting in that they, they do kind of keep with that, that standard uh, topos of warning against excessive grief. Um, but also, there is, there is an element of positioning himself as someone who can genuinely be there for the royal couple which when you think about it is really extraordinary that you've got this Italian immigrant who's who's maybe maybe a priest by this point maybe not we don't really know but kind of coming in and and saying to the 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 rulers of the place where he he lives you know I I can be there for you I I can be your friend so it's an incredibly interesting piece from that perspective of not really necessarily on on the surface of things being I think the the best way to say it is as actually it's a really wonderful example of the ways that his poetry can work at multiple levels. It can both be demonstrating that he knows the correct standards of social behavior, but also positioning him as a friend to royalty and this this figure who can offer this kind of help and support to to people who are in trouble. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: And there's something, the, the Christianity situation there, like makes that very popular, very po- possible, yeah. Um, all right. So, I mean, kind of overall, what do we know? What, do you, what does it take to be a friend? what What is the relationship that you should do? What do you need to do?
1: I think to be a good friend in Merovingian call takes a couple of different things. I, I think one of the the most, most important things is the reciprocity of the relationship. So one of the really interesting things about some of Fortunatus' friendship poems is that he's either sending them as kind of covering notes for a little presents, or he is in the poem itself saying that this poem is a present and one of the cool things about gift giving in pre-modern societies not just Merovingian societies but more broadly is that it in essence requires the return of a gift back so by, by reaching out to his friends and giving them the gift of poetry He's potentially setting in motion this this chain of events where to be a good friend, his addressees need to respond and need to write back. So, so writing back, replying, reciprocating is a really, really big part of it. A second really big part of it and a really interesting thing that he does and that lots of medieval letter writers do is he asks for in his some of his poems? He asks to be connected to other people's networks. So to to be commended is kind of the the technical term from Roman and late Roman culture. Um, to be to be commended to be recommended to other people. So not just reciprocating, but having a network and making that available to other people is is a really um, big part of, of being being a friend. And I think the third thing which is really interesting and adds this interesting contradiction to the first two is, Merovingian Gaul is not necessarily a place where the post is regularly delivered, where travel is easy and safe. This is, this is common across the medieval world. And so one of the other things that's required, the third thing, I think, and perhaps most important thing that's required to be a good friend in Merovingian Gaul is a very vivid imagination. So that if your friend isn't able to reply or something happens, the communication breaks off and you don't know why, you can imagine a situation where this connection is, is still possible. Fortunatus has some incredibly beautiful poetry which I talk about in the final chapter of the book where he is trying to maintain friendships with with other people and a lot of the way he does that is by imagining them in their abs- absence thinking about what they're doing, what they might be doing sort of almost creating this this little sort of movie in his head that's how I like to think of it uh, about their, their lives and their, their situations and that's something that this, this imagery this language of, of absent friendship where imagination is a big part of how to make a emotional connection and maintain a friendship is possibly the most important part. Wow.
0: That's, that's fair. That's lovely. All right. I have taken up so much of your time already. So I just have one more question. Um, And this one should be an easy one, but what's next for you?
1: Gosh, I think there are a few things that are next. In my job as a librarian, I'm currently working on a large funded project on, doctoral students development of digital skills and how these can be applied to lifelong learning so that's been a big part of my work and other projects i'm working on at the moment include a large project or a series of of smaller projects feeding into a large project on letter carriers in the late antique world so the people who Deliver these poems and these messages, and what that does for them, essentially, how being involved in networks of communication helps them to pursue their their own interests and their own objectives.
0: Well, that sounds fascinating. I want to know what you're. I want to know all about that. All right, and uh, so yeah, write write that, and we can talk about it. Okay. <laughs>
1: That's that's the plan.
0: That's the plan. Okay, excellent. I hope. Thank you so much for ta- for talking to me today.
1: Thank you very much.